Wood Church, and uh, again, my name is A.J. Belts. I've been here once before, and uh, there's a lot of familiar faces. It's good to see um, such an active church. Um, you have a very lively group of greeters. I think there was four or five people who greeted me when I came in. I really appreciated that. And um, it's good to see Anita. I'm glad that you're uh, working and keeping pushing Glow forward here. And um, thank you. I want to expend a, uh, extend a special thanks to the Reeves for hosting uh, the, the, the SWAT team girls, the Bible workers. And as uh, they mentioned, Jenny, she's my little sister. So it's really, really a blessing, exciting for me to get to see her here working for the Lord. And um, of course, always good to see Heidi and uh, good to see what she's up to. And glad that you're, uh, you guys are taking good care of these girls. So keep it up. Well, um, are you guys ready for a long-winded sermon? <laughs> All right. Nobody, nobody leaves until it's over. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> that was funny. That was good. This morning, I'd like to share with you a message um, as just kind of a preparation for our evangelistic series coming up next month. I'll be your seminar speaker, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to it, working with and learning from Pastor Godfrey. Um, our message is entitled, The Mind of Christ. Why don't we go ahead and begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word. Please uh, send your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Thank you for um, answering so many prayers over these 10 days of prayer. Thank you for the testimonies I've heard. We know, Lord, that you're a living God, that you're not a God, you're not an, uh, an absentee uh, Lord. You're present with us. Please come and be present with us now as we open your word. Speak directly to our needs. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you uh, played with magnets when you were kids? Anybody here? You ever play with, uh, with a magnet? I used, to, I used to be fascinated with those things when I was a kid. I was always just um, mystified by the, 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 the invisible force that would repel them and draw them together. And I was always a little scared, you know, how they, strong magnets will pinch your fingers. I don't know if you ever did that before. They were a lot of fun. One day, my dad, when I was maybe seven years old, he called me to the garage. And my dad, he's somewhat of a craftsman. He was in there and he was drilling holes through a piece of steel. I don't know what for. Um, I don't remember. But he, he called me and he said, AJ, come look at this. And he had this, this pile of, of metal shavings, also known as iron filings. He had these, these metal shavings. He he brushed them over into a little heap on a piece of cardboard. Then he took a magnet and he put this magnet underneath the cardboard. And to my seven-year-old seven -year mind, I was like, I was mystified. I was amazed. All those little pieces of metal suddenly became energized and started scurrying around like, like little soldiers falling, uh, falling into rank and file. They all organized themselves perfectly into little circles emanating away from the center of the magnet. Have you ever seen that before? It's really, it's kind of neat, actually. It's kind of, it's, it's really a mystery, you know? And, and so I saw that, and as I saw that, I, um, I was actually reminded of that years later. Here's actually a picture of it. Let's see if I can get this to work. There's kind of a picture. You know, you see the, the, the little pieces of metal. They're all, they're all perfectly organized, and they kind of stand up around the magnet. They're all following the, the rings of, of magnetism emanating away from the magnet. Years later, I read this quote, and it reminded me of that experience I had as a kid, where it says, all are free moral agents, and as such, they must bring their thoughts to run in the right channel. Here is a wide field in which the mind can safely range. Now watch this. 
If Satan seeks to divert the mind to low and sensual things, bring it back again and place it on eternal things. And when the Lord sees the determined effort made to retain only pure thoughts, he will attract the mind like the magnet. He will attract the mind like the magnet, purify the thoughts, enable them, and enable them to cleanse themselves from every secret sin, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth, exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Kind of an interesting thought, huh? You know, when, when, when Jesus becomes the center of our, of our mind, when he becomes the focus of our heart, when, we're, when we accept Christ into our lives, he has this effect on us. Oh, thank you. Um, he has this effect on us. All of our, this, this disorganized heap of thoughts, of conflicting emotions in our life, they all, they all become oriented around Jesus. Kind of like those little, those little uh, pieces of metal. As soon as my dad took that magnet away, out from underneath that cardboard, all those little pieces of metal that were standing upright, they all fell over, and he sloshed them around, and they became all disorganized again. But when the magnet's there, they all, they're, they're all instantly organized. That's the effect that Christ has upon our minds. He, he organizes it. He, he orients us. He directs us. He gives us coherence to our thoughts and to our emotions. That's the effect of having the mind of Christ. The question is, what, what does it mean? What is the mind of Christ? How do you, how do you get it? I think per, perhaps one of the clearest uh, text passages in the New Testament or maybe even in the whole Bible, regarding the mind of Christ, is in Philippians chapter 2. Why don't we turn there and take a look at this passage, famous passage about having the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, and let's go ahead and start, uh, take a look here at verse 5. Paul speaking to the Philippian church, and he says there in Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, did not consider it something to be grasped or retained or held onto to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form, uh, and by the way, in the Greek, made himself of no reputation, it means he emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself, taking of his, of his godlike powers, of his omniscience, of his omnipresence. He emptied himself and became a, a uh, he not only emptied himself, he became a bondservant. And not only a servant, he became an obedient servant. And in verse 8 it says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we hear, we see here that one the, the key aspect of having the mind of Christ is this humble servant, servanthood attitude, this mentality that I'm a servant. This is, this is what Jesus did. He humbled himself. He gave up his exalted, his glory. He gave up his power. He gave up uh, the glory and the comfort of heaven, and he became a servant. It's interesting. We see the exact opposite in uh, the description of Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14. He said, it's here on the screen. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my, star, my, my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. How interesting. 
we see the very opposite in, in the description of Satan, the very opposite mind. If, if you were to say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Satan, this would be it. It would be this, this, this climbing, this exaltation, this seeking for status. Satan, it says, interesting. So Jesus did not consider it something to be uh, grasped onto, to be equal with God. Look at what it says about Lucifer in Desire of Ages, page 436. While Lucifer counted it a thing to be grasped, that's, that's the exact same concept as in Philippians 2. Well, he, he, he counted it a thing to be grasped, to be equal with God. Christ, the exalted one, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, found in fashion as man, he humbled himself into the point of death. We see the exact opposite attitude in Satan. We see the, the very opposite of the principles of the mind of Christ, of the kingdom of Christ, in the, in the mind of Satan. Now, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to just take a look here at these principles being played out in the life of Jesus when he was, when he was uh, walking as a man on earth. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, Jesus has just been um, walking with his disciples, instructing them. He's recently told them, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and be crucified. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men, into the Gentiles, and I'll rise again the third day. And to the disciples, they're still questioning, what does this mean? It's kind of a mystery to them. They think he's speaking in some kind of riddles or something. And so he, he, he's saying this to them in Matthew 20, and then in verse, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, a special guest comes to meet Jesus. In verse 20, it says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. Now, John, James and John's mother, who, who was she? She, if you, if you look at the other accounts of, of James and John uh, throughout the Gospels, you find her name is Salome, and you can't prove it. I can't prove it to you, but you can see, uh, and some commentators actually believe, she was the sister of, of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So, so basically, they, they could have been, and most likely were, the cousins of Jesus. And this was Jesus' aunt, was uh, Salome. And here she was, coming and, and kneeling down, asking something from Jesus. And so, so, you know, she's kind of family. Kind of like, you know, she, she's entitled to receive something from Jesus because she has a relationship to him. Now, verse 21, it says, And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. You don't realize what you're asking. Then he goes on to say, he says, Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said, they said to him, We are able. So he said to him, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized. And they still don't understand his meaning. And be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. In other words, you're going to suffer, just like I have to, have to suffer. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom, are prepared, for whom it is prepared by my Father. Really quick, put, keep, your, keep your finger here or put a, leave a marker in Matthew 20. And notice what it says here in Mark 10. Mark chapter 10 and verse 35. We see the same thing, but, but they ask it just a little bit differently. Notice what it says here in Mark chapter 10. 
Mark chapter 10 and verse 35, James and John approach Jesus this time as well. The same, the same scenario. And notice what they say. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 35. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It kind of sounds like the, the prosperity gospel a little bit there. We want you to do for us whatever you ask. You know, Jesus must have been a little uh, sad in his heart. That must have grieved him a little bit. Flipping back here to Matthew 20, he is trying to explain to his disciples, listen guys, you have a misconception. You don't understand what the kingdom of God is really about. Sure, you're sincere. Yes, you, you have, a, you have a, a heart for me. I know that you love me. He, they loved Jesus, they did. But they still, they still didn't understand what the kingdom of heaven was really about, what Jesus' new kingdom was. They didn't understand that they, they couldn't wrap their minds around, wait, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and set up his, his, his kingdom, right? He's going to announce that he is the, the eternal king and we're going to sit on thrones with him. He just told us that. In fact, it says in Matthew, 20, or Matthew 19 that he tells the disciples, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging Israel with me. Jesus, he says, but you don't understand. True greatness in my kingdom, is not rulership. It's servanthood. Notice what it says here in Matthew, Matthew 20. Before the throne must come the cross. Before Sunday morning, there had to be Friday evening. Before the resurrection, there had to be the, the crucifixion. In, in verse 22 of Matthew 20, he again says, you do not know what you ask. In verse 23, he says, so he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup. You will indeed, and he's in essence telling them, though they don't realize it, you too will suffer like I suffer and be baptized with the, with the baptism that I'm baptized with. You also will, will endure um, trial and affliction as I will. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Interesting. Jesus is saying, this is no thing that you can earn. This is no thing you can get because you're part of the family. To sit with me on my right hand and my left hand is not something, and by the way, it's not something God gives. It's just an arbitrary decree or an arbitrary decision. But it's given to those who overcome. It says, in fact, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus said to John in Revelation chapter 3, to him who overcomes, I will grant with you to sit on my throne. Him who overcomes himself him who, who presses forward in the life of, the, the of self-denial, the life of servanthood of following Jesus. Let me tell you a, a quick story. This is, this is so well illustrated in the life of Harry Miller. Harry Miller, the, uh, the, 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 the missionary doctor to, uh, to China. Harry Miller, the, the China doctor. It says here that um, he was 12 years old, living in Ohio, he was born in, in 1879 in a little town north of Dayton, Ohio. And when he was 12, his parents became Seventh-day Adventists, which completely changed their lives. Harry Miller ended up going to um, Mount Vernon Academy. After that, he enrolled um, in Battle Creek College. And while he was there, he, he was a medical student at Battle Creek College. And while he was attending there, he was a brilliant student. 
just top of his class outstanding. And somebody took note of this young, brilliant medical student whose name was Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. You ever heard of him? Heard of Kellogg? So John Harvey Kellogg was always um, looking for a young protege or a successor. And he spotted this brilliant young resident at the hospital um, and encouraged him to go to Chicago after he graduated from Battle Creek and attend the famous uh, Rush Medical Clinic in Chicago. So when Harry Miller finished his time at Battle Creek College, he went to Rush Medical Center in Chicago. Dr. Kellogg had groomed him, and Dr. Kellogg said, I'm looking forward to giving you a very prominent position here at Battle Creek. And at that time, Battle Creek Sanitarium was a famous sanitarium in the world. Kings and queens would, would go to, sanitar- uh, to that sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, from, uh, from Europe and from around the world to be treated there. And even uh, president, presidents of the United States spoke at, at uh, Battle Creek Sanitarium. It was an incredible place, incredible uh, prestige and, and, and influence that it gained. But as, as, as Dr. Kellogg uh, you know, was making plans for this brilliant young medical student, Harry Miller had this conviction that he couldn't shake. It was a conviction that had settled upon him even as a young, as a young man. The conviction was to go be a missionary, to go be a medical missionary. And, and God, God was speaking to him and telling him, China needs you. Harry Miller, faced with prospects of, of making good money in and in a, of a prominent position at Battle Creek College, decided to throw it all away, as, as others said of him, and go to China to work as a, as a medical missionary. Of course, Kellogg wasn't happy about this, and others were upset, but, but um, Miller could not deny the call of God to go to China. It seemed absolutely foolish that this young physician, so brilliant, uh, so, so forward-looking, would throw his life away to go to central China. And it was in 1903, Miller got in, um, onto the steamship, the Indian Empress, and began to sail with a small group um, over to, to China. He had with him his prized possession, a Franklin printing press, because he knew when he got to China he would have to print literature. It took three weeks in those days to get to China by ship, and... Um, Incidentally, Dr. Miller got sick, terribly seasick, on the way over. He said that he was never going to make the trip again. He actually made it four more times in his life. Two years later, um, I mean two years into his time at China as a, as a missionary, his wife died. He, he continued to labor on alone, translating into Chinese, Sabbath school lessons, working with translators to translate as, as much Christian literature as he could. He started his medical practice. He saw children dying in China and was able to develop the soy milk industry in China. He was able to save the lives of thousands of children. He became the personal physician of Chiang Kai-shek in China. He became the personal physician of royalty throughout China. And in fact, he started 19 hospitals in the Far East, um, about 10 of which were in China. He became a pastor, an evangelist, a medical missionary physician, an inventor. He died at age 97 still doing medical missionary work. This thought came to me. We have 457,000 Seventh-day Adventists in China today. We have, there's well over 5,000 churches in China. The seeds that Dr. Miller started have grown and sprouted, and today his life of self-sacrificing service is bearing a harvest that is unimaginable, that we will only know in eternity. Someday Dr. Miller is going to go to heaven 
And he's going to see those people there who, because of his self-sacrificing service, are there. Thousands and thousands of people. Can you imagine? Almost half a million people who, who, who have been converted to Christ because of the seeds that he sowed. He was, he was confronted with a life of working at, at the, one of the world's most prominent medical institutions and, and, and receiving a good, a handsome salary and receiving a prominent position with Dr. Kellogg, the famous, world, the famous surgeon. But he threw it all away to go work as a humble missionary in China. Friends, the life that God calls us to, the life of service, may not be a life of prosperity as the world sees it. It may not be a life uh, of, of, good, of good money, of, of good worldly prospects. But if we follow Jesus and we follow the conviction on our heart, I'm not saying, by the way, everyone should go be a, 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 an overseas missionary, but we all should follow the convictions that God lays in our heart to service. Jesus, he says, he says the kingdom of heaven is not lording it over others as the, as, the, as the Gentiles do, as the world does it. You see, in the world, in the world, um, the world, it's, 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 about, it's about influence. It's about climbing the ladder. It's about self-aggrandizement. But with Jesus, it's not that at all. It's the opposite. He humbled himself. And because of that, he was able to accomplish so much more. Notice what it says in the Desire of Ages. Now the cross was just before him, and his own disciples were so filled with self-seeking, the very principle of Satan's kingdom, that they could not enter into sympathy with their Lord, or even understand him as he spoke of his humiliation for them. They were, they were, still, they were still battling with that internal struggle against self, that, that natural human principle, which is the principle of the world, which is the principle of Satan's kingdom, to, to exalt self. Jesus was calling them to something else. Now the cross was just before him. Notice what it, notice it goes on. Let's see if I can get this to... Christ was establishing a kingdom on different principles. He called men not to authority, but to service. The strong to bear the infirmities of the weak. Position, talent, education placed the possessor under greater obligation to serve his fellows. To even the lowliest of Christ's disciples, it is said, all things are for your sakes. Notice this, this quote from... Um, from John Stott. This is from his book, uh, The Cross of Christ. He says this. He says, um, the he says James and John, speaking of, of, of James and John, he says, they speak a different language from, than Christ. They breathe, breathe a different spirit. They express a different ambition. James and John want to sit on thrones of power and glory. Jesus knows he must hang on a cross in weakness and shame. The, the prayer of James and John is the exact opposite of true prayer. The world, even the church, is full of Jameses and Johns. Go-getters, status-seekers, hungry for honor and prestige, measuring life by achievement and everlastingly dreaming of success. They are aggressively ambitious for themselves. The call of the crucified one, the challenge of Calvary, the, the, the call of the community of the cross is radically different. It's a call to, to sacrifice, not selfish ambition. It's a call to service, not power. It's a call to suffering, not comfort. It's a call to give oneself to risk all for the cause of Christ. This is the very essence. This is the very heart of the Christian faith. Jesus is calling us to something completely different than, than what the world uh, deems and esteems as success. Turn with me, please, to um, uh, John chapter 12. 
John chapter 12, Jesus, he's again speaking in similar language to his disciples, trying to help them understand the, the principle upon which his kingdom is built. It's, it's, it's about a life of service, serving others, giving yourself up for, um, for others. You remember the story of uh, the, the, um, these Greeks that come to Jesus. And they, they come and they're looking for him and they're, they're, they're at the, in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. They want to see Jesus. And so Philip uh, and Andrew bring these Greeks to Jesus. And then in, in John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says in verse 23, but Jesus answered them saying, that the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. You guys hear this? The hour that the Son of Man should be glorified has come. The hour of Christ's greatest glory was the hour or the, the, the time he was on the cross. Did you know that the hour of the church's greatest glory is not the, the, the hour when the church has its greatest and most, most prestigious institutions? It's not the hour when the church is in the, 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 the largest and the most wealthy in the eyes of the world. The, the hour that it is glorified is in the hour of its greatest humiliation in the eyes of the world. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies... It must remain alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. There's a, you know, it's interesting. Jesus says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Um, Deltar, who was a career missionary to Africa, tells the story of the people who live in um, a portion of the, the, the Sahara Desert called the Sahal. And in the Sahal, um, people live on a very thin margin, the, the, the native people there. And Deltar tells, tell, tells the story that there's only four months out of the year when uh, there's any moisture in the Sahal. It's, it's um, May, let's see, May, June, July, and August. That's when the rains come, and that's when they have to plant their seeds for their fields because they're, they're agricultural, and that's how they, how they subsist. And um, Delta tells the story about the, the people, when after those, those four months are passed, and September and October come, the, the harvest comes, which is a wonderful time in the Sahal. Um, but after that, there's, there's months and months of burning, raging heat in the Sahara Desert. There's no rain, just heat. And the winds blow the desert sands and the grit gets into your teeth, he says. But during those time of harvest, the people have, their granaries are full of food in those, those months. And their granaries have, uh, they, so the people, they live on two meals a day during that time. But by the time December and January ro- rolls around, the people start, begin to omit the first meal of the day, and they only eat one meal because they have to ration out their portion of food for the year. So the people, they, they, they just eat, eat their, their little, they mash up their grain and make a, a bowl of gruel, and they'd eat one meal a day. By the time uh, February and March come around, they're, they're getting down to only half a bowl of gruel per day. And the children, they, they start to get a little bit sick because they, you know, you can't stay healthy only, only half of a meal per day. And... Um, Deltar tells, tells the story that occasionally a child in the month of April will go out into some, some shed or, or some place and find, go and find uh, some grain. 
And he tells a story of a little girl who goes into, the, into a barn and, and she finds this, this leather bag and it has these grains in it. And she comes running and says, Daddy, Daddy, I found some grain. I found some grain. Let's give it to Mommy so she can cook it and we can have food and we can, we can be, we'll be full. With tears in his eyes, he says, No, honey, this is, this is the grain for seed. We can't eat this. We need this for planting when, when, the, when the rains come. And so he, asks, he takes, takes the grain from his daughter and they, they keep it until the following month when the rains start to come. Then when, when, when the, the planting season begins, the father goes out there with tears in his eyes and he takes that last bit of substance, that last bit of food they have, and he throws it and he, and he sows it into the ground. I have a question for you. Why? Why would he throw that last bit of, of, of grain into the ground where, where it's going to die and not be, be food for the family. He believes, that's right, he believes in a harvest. Why, why, would, we, why would God call us to a life of self-sacrifice, of, of service for him? Why would he call us, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it dies, um, and it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces a harvest. God, why does he call us to, to follow him? And why, does he, why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he um, humble himself as he did? Because he believed there was going to be a harvest. Why do we serve Jesus? Because we believe there's going to be a harvest. Why do we deny ourselves? Why do we give up the, the, the prospects of the world and follow the convictions and leading of our heart? Because Jesus promises there's going to be a harvest. It's for love of the people who will be saved. That's why. You know, um, this, this coming February, we're going to have an evangelistic series. And um, I encourage you, ask yourself, Lord, how can I help out in some way? You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, things that need to be done, a lot of logistical things. There's, um, there's uh, you know, there's greeting. We need greeters. We need people for childcare. We need all kinds of things. Ask yourself, Lord, is there a way I can help out or is there some other way? Can I bring a friend Maybe God just wants you to pray for the, the evangelistic series. But ask yourself, God, what are you calling me? How are you calling me to serve? Ask him and say, and, and, and I, I encourage you, you know, um, there was a story told of a man who was a janitor working for NASA. You may have heard this. And um, as there was a news reporter in, the, in, in NASA one day in the 1960s, um, they were all working feverishly in, a, in the space race. And as this janitor was working, a news reporter came over and saw him working there, sweeping the stairs, and he said, excuse me, sir, what are you doing? And this janitor, he looked at him, and he said, I'm putting a man on the moon. Because he understood, he, 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 he realized that we're, no matter what aspect God calls us to serve, we're all part of bringing about a harvest, amen? We're all about reaching the lost. That's what we're here for, amen, in this community. Friends, I appeal to you today that we want the mind of Christ, amen? We want our hearts and our affections and our, that, that those emo- our disorganized, conflicting emotions to all be brought into harmony with the mind of Christ. I appeal to you, friends, if God is laying a conviction on your heart to serve in a way that you have not served before, follow that conviction. Sure, it may take some self-denial. Sure, you might have to, you know, not, you may not get to achieve some of those things that you were, you were hoping and aspiring for. 
but God is calling you to achieve something much greater, something much bigger. Henry Miller, or Harry Miller, the doctor to China, he never could have imagined the harvest of souls that would exist today when he first went as a, as a lonely, humble missionary to China. Friends, if you follow God, follow the convictions that he is giving you, placing on your heart to serve him, the results will be beyond anything you could ever achieve on your own. Anything you could ever devise yourself. Christ has much bigger plans. And if faithful, like it says in Revelation 3, God will grant to him who overcomes the right to sit with him on his throne. Amen? Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I want to thank you for the example of Jesus. I thank you for the, the wonderful uh, humiliation that you, that you um, made for us. You emptied yourself, Lord. You were not content in heaven to, be, to, to see us down here suffering and perishing away in our sins. And Lord, you sacrificed so much for us. I just thank you so much for that, Lord Jesus. And I, I thank you that, that if we too will follow you in that example of service, of servanthood, of seeking to serve others as you served us. We too, Lord, will be brought to heaven someday. We too will be uh, with you in glory. Thank you so much for this promise, Lord. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless.